0: The following Dharma Talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. So Tonight is week seven out of eleven. And uh, this week and next week, we'll be looking mostly at mindfulness. And then on to samadhi, the stability of mind, or sometimes translated as concentration, and ending the last week or two with wisdom, the fifth of the five faculties. So just a quick review. The five faculties, it's just one of the maps. The Buddha used different maps covering the same territory. And the territory the Buddha was interested in is being a human being. How is it that suffering arises, this internal or subjective experience of stress, and how is it that this internal subjective experience of suffering, despair, alienation, whatever particular flavor, how does it cease? So that's the territory. And basically for 45 years or so, the Buddha taught, different, using different maps, that for different people in different moments of their lives, would illuminate that territory. Like, there is a mind, there is a heart, and sometimes our subjective experience is, this is unbearable, this is really hard to be who I am, to have the life, the experience I'm having right now. And other times, life feels very alive and buoyant and free. And so the Buddha's maps... Right? if we learn how to use them and find the right maps at the right moment, <clears throat> it illuminates that space where suffering arises and suffering ceases, so we learn better how to participate in that space, how to you know, participate in a way where we're avoiding the experience of that psychic way, being bound up, and realizing moments, more and more moments, of a lot of freedom in that space of being a human being, regardless of the particular circumstances. That's the, that's the real kicker. So the five faculties is one of those maps. And uh, over the last six weeks, we've looked at faith, or confidence, that. The map is useful. These maps are useful. There's something to wake up to. There's a way, a purpose of applying ourselves or being waking up, understanding, becoming more skillful in ways that lead to greater freedom, right? There's some sense of a path. That's faith and confidence. Because otherwise, without faith and confidence, the thing that seems to make sense is just sort of either crawling into a hole, hiding, or uh, a strong addiction to sense pleasure, just to stay entertained, you know, as long as I'm alive, to stay entertained. And, you know, it's its its own kind of suffering, but at least there's some juiciness in it, right? Because it's suffering to need entertainment, to need interesting or pleasant sense experience and it, we end up sort of justifying all kinds of behaviors that cause ourselves and other suffering when we're dependent on having particular experiences i mean human history is basically defined by human beings you know taking advantage of other living beings or living things right in order to have pleasant sense experiences and avoid painful sense experience, and it you know, and then we get into this place, which you know we always, to some degree, find ourselves in, where we're um, competing and struggling and feel in danger, and that happens even on an emotional level. Like, am I being seen? Am I being loved? Am I being cared for in the way I need or want to be cared for? So, um, the faith that there's a way to realize, to wake up, to, to uncover safety and freedom in this actual world that we live in, right? W- to whatever degree we're inspired, that's energy. Energy to check it out, right? We're, you know, the initial levels of confidence of faith, we don't have a lot of confidence of faith. It's just enough. To not live a life of distraction, just enough to explore, is there in fact a way? What would I need to do to confirm that there is a way? Well, I need to stabilize my awareness, to pay attention, right? So we start making that effort. And that's what we talked about the last few weeks, is the effort basically taking responsibility for the one tool that we have respect for, this capacity to pay and to pay attention in a way that allows for learning. Right? It's this instrument, stabilizing awareness, increasing sensitivity, which in a way is the opposite when we have no faith and confidence. We're not interested in being sensitive, we're interested in being, uh, to sort of numb out I mean, that's what we use TV for or other intoxicants. It's like we don't want to be open and sensitive. We only are interested in becoming more sensitive. That's what stability of awareness samadhi does. It makes us really sensitive. It's also the pleasantness of samadhi, you know, concentration, stability, mind, is so we can tolerate being sensitive. It's like a counterweight the exposure of being awake, more and more awake, more and more sensitive. So the only reason a human being would make effort to be more sensitive if there's some sense that it's onward leading, and we talked about that in terms of faith and effort. So we're moving onward. Somehow, there's something to be learned, something to be realized or discovered. I need awareness to realize and discover that. So, I'm going to strengthen, I'm going to make the effort, I'm going to clean up, develop this muscle of awareness, right? And then, the interesting thing about mindfulness itself, as one of the five faculties, is according to the more current research, because a lot of, you know how it is with these institutionalized systems like Buddhism is, like any spiritual religious system, but fortunately, you know, with some academic sciences and, you know, just ways of analyzing the texts and archaeology, finding the earlier texts, a lot that's there in our sort of more, the, the translations we've read When you do an analysis of these uh, early transmissions of the teachings into China and up into Tibet, you see that some of those instructions that we associate with the Satipatthana Sutta, the discourse on mindfulness, the the basic collection of the Buddhist teachings on mindfulness, they weren't there in those early transmissions. So one thing Venerable Analio did, and I sent you an article this afternoon uh, where he basically summarizes his research Like for mindfulness of the body, there's no being mindful of the breath or mindful of your movements. Those teachings are there in another discourse, mindfulness of the body. But they're not there when the Buddha is talking about mindfulness because he's really talking about transforming our view so we can be mindful. So the teachings on mindfulness are basically like how to experience things in and of themselves, how to experience the body Without being, without our experience of the body being corrupted, but by so much programming we have to think of bodies as either attractive or repulsive, right? Because we, I mean, that that programming is thick. So, the first, the thing that I mean, there's really three parts that were consistent in these early transmissions. So, I mean, he doesn't know with certainty; no one does, but there's some sense from Ven.able Analiyo and other scholars that what was there in the early years, earlier years, was this instruction, like if you want to be mindful of the body, you have to interrupt the habit of seeing the body as a whole that's attractive or unattractive. And the way you can do that, one way you can do that, is you can realize the body is just these, and the, the traditional teaching is these 32 body parts. You know, there's phlegm, there's Tissue. There's bones. There's you know eyelashes and nails, teeth, and and you can imagine as we do when we do our course on mindfulness of the body. We do an eight week course on mindfulness of the body somewhere in the six year curriculum of the Buddhist Studies class or program. Um, we actually do that, and you can find really great teachings online, or just go to the Buddhist Studies webpage. Look on the right column for that course on mindfulness of body and you'll get all the texts and the recordings to do that if you want to dig in a little bit more deeply. But Venerable Inalio, you know, he just simplifies it instead of memorizing. And it's a powerful me- uh, meditation to, to memorize and to go through the 32 body parts and do it just, a, yeah, it's all imagining, right? So this has nothing to do with being sensitive to sensation, which we normally think of in terms of mindfulness of the body. It's really challenging view. You know, the way we imagine the body, the way we think about the body. So we're thinking, we're training the mind to think about it as part. So the way we did it tonight is how Venable Anali, and I'll send you, he has only two things on Dharma Seed. One is this guided meditation that we did part of tonight that I'll send you the link, although you can go ahead and find it on your own. And, uh, so he just breaks it down like we did, skin, flesh, and bones, instead of the 32 body parts. And so we're just training. When we do it externally, we look at other bodies. You know, I know that's Alex, and that's the sort of label we use for this dynamic of body and mind here, right? This guy's Alex. But in terms of his body, we can train when you look at your partner or your kid or your cat. See, it doesn't matter that bodies are basically skin, flesh, and bones. And it, it, it sort of neutralizes this habit of feeling compelled. I really like the body of my cat. You know, I find it appealing, attractive. But that cat, you know, that has that disease or is old or, you know, whatever, not clean, a feral cat, you know, not attractive. I like tabbies, but I don't like these other kind of cats, you know? I mean, isn't it amazing, like with dogs? Oh yeah, I like that kind of dog. I don't like that kind of dog. And with people too, you know, some shapes, some colors, some ages. But when you break it down to skin, flesh, and bones, it's not really that different. It doesn't matter. On the surface, it seems like bodies really matter. But do they really when we realize it's just skin, flesh, and bones, it doesn't really matter. It's neutral. And the the simile the Buddha uses is uh, like a bag of seeds. There'd be kidney beans and some lentils and sesame seeds and you know whatever other kind of beans there are. And um, so it's not a, like a disgusting image. You know, if you had a burlap burlap bag full of different seeds and you kind of cut open the bag. And you, you took the time to put all the lentil seeds over here, and all the kidney beans over there, and all the pinto beans, and you know it's not a disgusting thing. And it would, and it's just a way of, uh, it, and you know, some of you know this particular discourse or sutta on the four distortions, right, in the mind. It's really a wonderful teaching where the. Buddha's basically saying there are these four distortions in our thinking, in our view, in our way of perceiving, our way of thinking, and our way of believing or viewing things. right? And so one of them corresponds with this work on the body, which is we imagine um, something to be, I mean there are different ways, the word is asuba, right? Some of you know that word. And so sometimes that word is translated as disgusting. I don't find that a very useful because it really seems to be a value judgment. Impure is a, maybe a better word, or not attractive. But remember, not attractive is not the same as saying something is disgusting or ugly, right? It's just not attractive. It's not worthy of me wanting or being attracted to not worthy of the mind, placing some value on it. Because that's what we want to tease out of the way the mind thinks about the body, is tease out that it doesn't have value for anybody, i.e. me. It's just a bag of seeds. right? It's just skin, flesh, and bones. Not disgusting. It's just as skin, flesh, and bones, I mean, it's not saying that there isn't a purpose to this amazing machinery or whatever of the body, right? It just doesn't have value in terms of attractiveness. That's what we're teasing out, that valuing of, that, you know, that scale from disgusting to really beautiful, really attractive. We're just disassociating that habit with what we call body, taking, you know, uprooting it with this kind of contemplation. Then, see, you can get a sense then why, oh, that would make it easier to be aware of the body in and of itself when I don't have that old habit of framing it in terms of attractive or non-attractive. Make sense? So that's one way of purifying one's view is to train the mind to see the body in this non-attractive way. And then the next training that we did, right? And I'll go through all of them tonight because there's, there's a number. We, there are four foundations, four frames of reference. Sometimes it's called four establishments of mindfulness. And here the Buddha is saying that this training is really what sets up the awakening process. Right? We have to purify how we what we take the mind to be, the mind and body to be. So the four establishments, the four foundations of mindfulness are just the body and the mind. The first one being about transforming the mind's relationship to the body. And so the the second part of that, so the three parts of being aware of the body that we need to purify, is the element meditation that we did. And again, another one of those distortions is we take things to be self that are actually impersonal. So like our experience of sensation feels very personal. Like whatever experience of body, you know, as sensation, it feels like special to me. But it's always made up of these same elements that we've always been experiencing in the body and everybody experiences in the body. Hardness is Hardness. Gabe's hard experience of hardness is really not different, or Scott's experience of warmth, right, is not different than my experience of warmth. Right? When Sharon feels a kind of cohesive or a supported uprightness or a kind of movement of breath, that feeling of movement, that's not sp- special or distinct or unique to one person but we can be very possessive of how it feels for us in the body, but it's made up of these very impersonal elements. So we train the mind to experience the body in this impersonal way. Oh, that's just hardness. That's just softness. That's just roughness. That's just smoothness. That's just heaviness. That's just lightness. That's what the Buddha means by the earth element. right? And water... It's a little bit more in conjunction with the other elements, but it has a sense of cohesion. Like when you feel your body right now, there's a sense of it cohering as one thing. That's that's more subtle aspect of body is called the water element. And then there's the temperature. That's uh, more obvious for us to tune into. And the interesting thing, the feeling of temperature, warmth, and coolness You can train yourself to see that anywhere in the body. It's not just like your hands are warm but everything else doesn't have temperature. Wherever you put your attention, you'll see temperature, warmth or coolness. And you can train yourself, even in places that are hot, to see the relative coolness there or places that are cool to see the relative warmth there. And in different meditative traditions, they've made a real art of this. Uh, I studied with one teacher, Shokni Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher once in... Just because of his uh, birth, uh, he was uh, made to be an abbot of a nunnery in Tibet, uh, and he got to visit there once. And he had, and also I think in Nepal, a couple of different places. And uh, and because he was sort of the you know very important visiting lama, they the nuns pulled out their uh, Forget now what the, it's called this particular meditation on heat. And they have contests, evidently, in the winters, you know, up there in the mountains, to see how many wet wool blankets the practitioner can evaporate through using their heat meditation. And I've done some of, n- not that particular, but just in, in doing the element meditation and working with temperature, where part of what you're doing is learning to feel heat everywhere. Learning to feel coolness everywhere, until your mind just gets good at perceiving that. Same with all the elements: he, uh, weight, you know, heaviness and lightness, smoothness and roughness. Like that experience of levitation. Sometimes it just that feeling of floating is when the mind gets really interested in the element of lightness, and is not interested in the element of heaviness. And so, you know, the thing about concentration, when the mind gets one-pointed, curious and interested in only one thing, then one's experience is completely that one thing because that's what the mind is paying attention to. And so the mind then experiences the absence of everything else. So there are sometimes people feel as heavy as the earth. Really, I mean, that's the subjective experience. Or as light as being, having no weight at all. Or any number of other hot, like they're burning up, or like an ice cube, right? Because it's like when you're really angry, right? And you, the mind is obsessed with anger. It's like, oh, that's all you are. You're just 100% anger, because that's how concentration works. And like when we do metta practice, loving kindness practice, and you get some momentum, it's really strong. And it's like boundless. It's like there is no part of the experience of the mind and body that isn't radiant love. That's how it is when the practice is really strong. And we're learning that about the elements, right? That these elements are naturally occurring elements. They're not personal. There's nothing personal to them. And when the mind gets more fluent, it really interrupts the idea that my sensory experience of body is mine or personal to me, you know, unique to me. No, no, it's just some combination of the elements. And even those elements are there because of what the mind is paying attention to in the moment, like what stands out. Like when we have a lot of physical pain and there's some real burning in that physical pain or hardness, sharpness or whatever it might be, part of what makes it so unbearable is the mind is paying attention to just one aspect. You know, and it's so nice to pay attention to other aspects, like the space aspect, right? Or tuning into something that's light or something, the cohesion of the whole thing together or the movement of the breath, to really tune into that. And so the element meditation is really there to interrupt taking things personal. And that's the second distortion to imagine something is personal that is actually impersonal. Did I say permanent? I meant impersonal, right? So the first one is to, to imagine something is attractive when it's not really attractive. That's a common distortion, is to see things in, along that scale of attractiveness and unattractiveness and to realize things are just what they are, experiences, and to work on that level with the body in particular. And then to interrupt the idea of seeing the body as personal, realize it's just impersonal elements during their dance, being known. And then the, the third one, which we didn't do tonight, uh, which is about the uh, impermanent nature and the way the, the traditional, what you see when you read the Satipatthana Sutta is the cemetery contemplation. Just imagining a body dying, that isn't taken care of by, you know, a mortician or some somebody in some way burnt or anything, and the body's just left, and then it goes through that natural cycle. And probably all of us have bumped into at least a bird, or maybe a squirrel, or maybe a deer. I've bumped into a few deers that have been far along that decomposition path. And you can go online actually, because there are not Buddhists out there in the world. And this is a a traditional Buddhist contemplation, the cemetery contemplation, to really imagine that natural process of decomposition of the body, and to really see it from you know the initial stiffness that comes. Uh, Venerable Analio, this Buddhist monk that I've studied with a number of times now, he says he said in one of his retreats that. He d- when he goes to bed at night, this is one of the things he does regularly. He uses the four elements, right? So the first thing is, you know, as you're getting closer to death, not always, but, you know, depending, you know, more natural process of dying, your body starts to waste away, right? So you lose a lot of the earth element. You get skinny, You get really light. Some of you have been around people who have had a longer dying process. And it's happened with a couple of people I've been around as they've died. And they become like, Not much of anything, their body, just sort of starts to waste away. So the earth element goes. And then at some point closer and and soon after death, the water element, right, they dry up. The body dries up. The body sometimes even evacuates fluids. And then the heat element goes away, right? It goes cold. The body goes cold. Even before the body dies, that coolness can start to set in. You might feel the extremities getting really cold. It's just the circulatory system is just not working anymore. And then the movement is the last thing to go, right? The air element, the breath, that death rattle, some of you have seen. And the way, the simple way, I mean, you can flash on some of these images, especially if you've been around people who have died, because it's such a provocative thing. And the reason it's provocative is we all know that people die, but somehow we don't, it isn't clear and it isn't continuous in our own heart that that's going to happen to this body. It's always shocking when we r- were reminded that it's going to happen to us. If you haven't had a chance yet, visit the Carrying Bridge website and follow along with Steve Armstrong's uh, entries, his journal entries. Some of you know Steve Armstrong. He's one of our longtime teachers here in Minnesota. He's been visiting and teaching here. About once a year for the last uh, 20 some years, maybe, yeah, maybe 24 years now, something like that, long time. And uh, a regular teacher at IMS in Massachusetts, and he and Kamala Masters have been developing a a beautiful Dharma sanctuary on Maui in Hawaii, uh, where they have some cabins for long time practitioners to do their practice. And uh, Steve now has a, a very aggressive brain cancer that he's treating. And, you know, the prognosis for people with this kind of cancer is not good. And he's been journaling um, on this Bridge website. And you can read, you know, just like how he's dealing with his mind and dealing with all the, the dance of the medical system, taking care of his body. And that can be a support for this contemplation, right? Keeping in mind so that See that this is the the one of the, the third distortion it's not in this particular order so things we imagine to be attractive or unattractive are actually neutral or they're just what they are that's the first when we talked about the second is things are impersonal not personal as we imagine them to be that's the element med- meditation and this cemetery contemplation is realizing things are impermanent not permanent We imagine things to be permanent, but in fact they're impermanent. And the easy way, or an easy way to do that, is the way that you'll see in this guided meditation, if you listen to it, that I'll send out tomorrow. Um, Venable Anali will suggest that each time you breathe in, so it's using breath meditation, each time you breathe in, just remember the simple truth that this could be the last in-breath, but assuming it's not the last in-breath, It's absolutely one breath closer to the last in-breath. And you just bring that thought up in your mind. Oh yeah, this is one breath closer to the last breath. And then as you exhale, just relax. And then next time you breathe in, just have that short, simple contemplation. Could be the last, I'm not sure, but it's definitely one step closer to the last breath. And then exhale and relax. And if you start getting anxious in doing that, then just emphasize the relaxation of the exhalation more and a little softer with in-breath. And if you're getting bored, then put more juice. Use your imagination. Flash on some of these images you might have from your own direct experience or from digging around on the Internet or looking for decaying bodies. You know, But generally, imagination is enough right? because we know So it's just personalizing what we know intellectually. You know, and it's just, you can, there are different telltale signs. Like, I mean, it's been here for a while, but these aging spots that we get when we get a little older, you know, just start seeing these spots. And it's so interesting, like those of us with partners, and I'll catch wind, sort of, like I've got a couple of these, you know, they're just brown spots that you get when you get older. You know, she'll kind of be looking, like, what's that? (laughs) Because it didn't used to be there. You know, and now there's a brown spot there, and there's another one there, you know, besides the, the gray hair and that sort of receding hairline and all those telltale signs that just we need to let it in. Otherwise, we're living with this unseen distortion. Yeah, people die. But what remains unsaid, but I don't, somehow, I don't think it's going to happen to me. Right? Because it cha- when we know that it will happen to us, we're different. We're dif- We're interacting, we're engaging our world, our direct immediate experience in a different way. We're a different human being when we're not under that distortion of things are permanent. And then there, so that's the three body contemplations. When you look at the usual translation in the Pali Canon, there are three additional ones. There's mindfulness of breathing, there's mindfulness of daily activities. There's another one. What's the fourth one? Or the sixth one. I'm forgetting. But anyway, but when you look at the early transmission, the the three that you find in all the early transmissions are the three that I talked about tonight. Using the body parts to interrupt the distortion that things are the body's attractive using the element meditation to disrupt the idea that it's personal body's personal and using some kind of contemplation on impermanence decomposition death to re, to uproot the distortion that of permanence and then from the contemplation on body The last three are really different aspects of the mind. So there's feeling tone, which in Buddhism is an aspect of the mind. Because it's the, the mind, mental activity, that attributes a positive, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral feeling tone to every sense experience. Whether it's a bodily experience, well that's a pleasant sensation, or an unpleasant sensation, or a mental experience, you know, like I'm... You know, thinking a thought, having a memory, imagining something. Oh, that's a pleasant imagining, or that's an unpleasant imagining. So whether it's mental or physical, there's a feeling tone associated. And this particular aspect of the mind can uproot the wrong idea, this distorted idea that experience can be satisfactory. And it does, we we can uproot that idea in two ways, and I mentioned it briefly in the guided meditation. One is, you know, as you contemplate the body in terms of feeling tone, you can see even though the body can feel really nice at times, like especially in a meditative place where you, the meditation is quite strong, the mind is quite stable, so a lot of calm, a lot of peace, a lot of lightness. The body actually can feel quite light, as I mentioned, energetic instead of heavy and solid and twisted steel. But even then, the mind realizes that the pleasantness that's there is, like I mentioned in the guide meditation, the Buddha uses this image of a bubble, you know, like when it rains and then there's a the little momentary bubble that comes from the raindrop hitting the ground. And how long does that bubble last? In the great scheme of things, pleasant feelings don't last very long. Unpleasant feelings don't last very long. And we can contemplate the ephemeral nature of feeling and that the general difficulty of the body. Right, like Even when we're lying down, I don't know if all of you have done lying down meditation, but if you haven't, I'd really explore it. It's, it's a good thing to have up your sleeve one more meditation posture that can be good medicine at the right time. And uh, But the interesting thing, even if you're just in the right place, like today I did my guided, I often do a little lying down meditation every day in the middle of the day, and lately I've been putting my calves on a chair, you know, so my legs are at a right angle, and that just helps the lower back, it can be more comfortable for me, arms to the side, little pillow, nice blanket on top of me. If there's a little spot of sunshine on the carpet, I'll go there, you know, You do everything right, but the interesting thing is the pleasantness doesn't last forever. Even if it's like really pleasant initially, and probably for several minutes for most of us, right? But at some point, maybe 15 minutes in, maybe 10 minutes in, maybe some of you, you know, assuming you stay awake, because surprisingly falling asleep and getting lost in dream. Is one way to re- uh, to avoid realizing that the body is now un- uncomfortable, right? But because the mind is absorbed in the dream, the mind doesn't realize it. Even lying down, the body has to keep moving. You know, have you ever seen that? You can find them on online, you know, on like YouTube or things. But these speeded up videos of people sleeping—it's always moving. <laughs> we think, you know, you're just but that's it's just not the case. There's like little adjustments all the time. Why? Because of the unsatisfactoriness of the body, the unpleasantness of the body. And so to, to get that that's part of life, this removes the distortion, the wrong idea that pleasantness, stable, continuous pleasantness can be had. Because it really, once the mind gets that, that life, you know, being embodied, having a life, a mind and body, whatever it means to be a human being, as soon as we get that this, because like, we wrongly think that the purpose of human existence is to get to that place where it's really pleasant in a lasting way. I mean, not that we would say that out loud, but if we actually look at our actions, like what do our actions tell us, Most human beings are pursuing getting into that sweet spot as if there's actually a sweet spot where things are going to be pleasant forever. But we never find that place. But we still pursue that all the time. I'll just eat a little bit of this. I need to put a little salt on it. Now after eating that salty thing, I could use something sweet or maybe a drink. Now I've eaten too much. I've got to do something else so that I don't notice how uncomfortable I feel having eaten too much. So maybe there's something interesting to watch on the Internet or on TV. I'm a little fried from watching so much TV. Maybe I'll take a hot bath. I'll put some salt, have some salt in the bath, and that will sort of reground myself. Now I'm a little hot, just being in the bath, you know, so maybe I'll put some light clothes on and stand outside for a few minutes and cool off. You know, I'm a little cold. I'm going to crawl under my covers. <laughs> yeah. There's one teacher in Burma in the early years where some of the Westerners were going there in the 50s, 50s 60s, and 70s, a pretty well-known Sayadaw, And his whole teaching was something like, and this, this you'll find actually, I think, um, back in the discourses of the Buddha somewhere, the Buddha says, and then this Sayadaw, this well-known Burmese monk, made a hole sort of meditation tradition out of it, and the Buddhist comment was movement masks dukkha. Right? Movement, our physical activity, masks the inherent unpleasantness of embodiment, of having a life. We keep moving because we don't want to notice how unpleasant it is. So once the, we do the work of interrupting that idea that there is pure, lasting satisfaction, then we don't neurotically seek it. It's such a relief not to neurotically seek lasting satisfaction in our embodied existence. And then we're, we've got so much time then to look for a happiness where we might actually find it instead of looking for happiness where we're pretty sure not going to find it because have you found it? Have you found that place that is pleasant in a lasting way in our sense experience? No. And so this is what that practice around being aware of this aspect of the mind, what we call feeling tone. Vedana is the Pali word. And it's a little troublesome for us because we use that feeling all the time. Like even in terms of Mindfulness, we sometimes like, what are you feeling? What are you knowing? What are you feeling? Right? So sometimes we, we use the word feeling synonymous with knowing or being aware. But here we're using it in a more technical sense. So just in this tradition, teachers more often will say feeling tone to distinguish it from the more generic ways that we use the word feeling. So when you hear a teacher or you read something that says feeling tone, The instruction is more about the pleasantness, unpleasantness or neutrality of the feeling of what that feels like. And it's a mental, it's an aspect of perception, right? It's like because I recognize it in this way, it's unpleasant or it's pleasant or it's, I don't care about it, it's neutral. And we want to pay attention to the ephemeral or the changing nature of feeling tone. Feeling tones keep changing and how that's unsatisfactory and that just generally speaking embodiment is unsatisfactory. We don't get into a sweet spot. Having a body, I mean it's not like we're these celestial beings that have bodies of light as they, you know, in the tradition... I don't know how much the Buddha talked about this, but certainly, probably, I'm pretty sure before the time of the Buddha, and then for sure, for sure, after the time of the Buddha, you know, there's all this talk about these other realms of existence, like there is in, in much of human history. You know, a- angels or celestial beings, and the idea is they're not burdened with a gross body, right? They have a body of energy or a body of light, or some, you know, were subtle realms, they don't even have bodies of light. You know, it's just love without any kind of energetic embodiment, just pure love. Right. But in this level, right, this more whatever, gross level of existence, having a body that's cold, having a body that ages, having a body that aches, that gets indigestion, toothaches, and all the other things that just naturally, unavoidably come. Well, it's not satisfactory. And even when we're in a relative sweet spot, we know it's temporary until the next you know, insult comes our way. And then the last thing I'll mention, so we have three trainings in mindfulness of the body, purifying the view of the body, And then we use mindfulness of feeling, right, as just seeing the unsatisfaction. As we observe feeling and the constancy of feeling and the change of feeling, the constancy means there's always a feeling and that it's always changing, we realize, we really, the mind gets more clear about the unsatisfactoriness of sense experience. And then with the mind... We're really noticing the presence or absence. Like we're, Now we're really um, developing awareness itself in a more direct way because we've transformed our view. We really want to develop awareness. And we're just noticing whether there is greed or there isn't greed in the mind. And of course, with this dynamic, we generally are initially better at seeing when there's greed. But when's the last time there was a clear moment of mindfulness, there's no greed in the mind, where the mind really, wisdom really saw, this is a mind without greed, or this is a mind without ill will, or this is a mind without distraction. So really, that's the mindfulness, one of the important features of the third foundation, being mindful of mind, is to know the difference, oh, there's greed in the mind. There's no greed in the mind. And it's like this. There's ill will in the mind. There's no aversion whatsoever in the mind. There's distractedness, superficiality in the mind. There's no superficiality, no distractedness, no wavering, just a simple, clear, stable presence. And the interesting thing is, it's like it really is supportive in the stabilizing of awareness to just notice, right? it's at this level it's less about me fixing things or somebody fixing things as is, as it is about just noticing whether there's greed or no greed ill will or no ill will and that's relatively easy to resolve or to train or to convince yourself to be interested in and some of you know this it's it's very useful like you don't even have to you can just ask the question is there greed in the mind or is this a mind without greed? I mean, just drop that question in. You can continue being mindful of your breath or walking or whatever technique you might be working with that in the in that moment. But just to resolve to be curious about greed or no greed, ill will, like being controlling, being impatient. Right? Remember, ill will can be very subtle, just a subtly controlling or subtly impatient, or nor no ill will superficial distracted dull like sometimes distracted is like a little sleepy or a little hyped right So that energy imbalance that we call sleepiness and restlessness as two of the hindrances that's actually related to whether there's distraction or no distraction. So the energy is nicely balanced not too much, not too little right Oh yeah this this mind is not distracted. So I'll leave it here. We have about ten minutes left, and to think now, we've we've got some confidence that there's something to do with our life, than just pursue sense distraction. That's called faith or confidence. Like something to do with my life. We're willing because of that. We're willing to make some effort, right? And we're really applying the effort to transform initially to interrupt these four distortions. To imagine that there's something like, because this is all about sense experience, attractive versus unattractive. No, it's just stuff, just another experience being known, right? Like seeds, pinto beans, kidney beans, but that's all beans or all seeds. To interrupt that it's personal, right? With the elements, to interrupt ideas of permanence. It's not nothing's permanent. And to interrupt the idea that there's some lasting satisfaction that's from studying feeling tone and then we balance the mind All right so this is mindfulness is really learning how to develop the instrument of awareness how to refine the instrument or the muscle of awareness so it can do the job of seeing what it, the mind hasn't seen before understanding And this is this, you know, we'll get there at some point, but really understanding uh, that nothing whatsoever is worthy of grasping. It's like the mind has to see things as they are. That's what causes grasping, struggling, attachment, identification, and suffering to fall away. It's not like somebody decides, "I'm, I'm ready to stop suffering. No. That clarity, that balance of mind, sees things as they are. And what we mean when we say sees things as they are, knows things as they are, is nothing is worth grasping. And then letting go happens. Nobody lets go. Letting go happens when awareness sees things as they are. Seeing things as they are is the same as seeing that nothing whatsoever is worthy of grasping. It doesn't make sense to grasp. And that's why I love that image. You know, when we're holding something hot and we realize we're holding something hot, we let go. It's just that sort of instinct built into the body to let go of something too hot. It's nature that lets go, right? You know, any sort of you kind of being the person, okay, now should I let go of this hot pan? I mean, that's silly to to sort of like think we got to imagine that we have to think this through. Because it's just built into the system, you know. Just the same thing. If we caught ourselves too close to the edge of a cliff, you know, we just immediately there's the, I forget what that those reflexes are called that are built wired. I mean, they're really wired into the. It's interesting when you see a cat or uh, another human being, like yourself, that animals that have uh, less cognitive interference and they see a little swirly thing, and they think, have you seen this with a cat? And then it would just like, I mean, it it can literally go like three feet, and you don't even see it, and it just like jumps in the opposite direction. It's not a snake, but it thinks it's a snake, or imagines it might be a snake. Of course, there's no obvious cognitive, like it doesn't use the concept of snake. It's just wired in. When you see this wiggly thing, you do this thing, you know, some through the evolutionary process, it gets just wired in. And this is a little bit like the spiritual letting go of attachment. It's a natural impersonal process. What has to happen is the instrument of awareness needs to be developed so that the mind is literally shocked by the way it is, shocked into letting go of attachment, shocked into letting go of clinging, of any kind of grasping. And then the mind realizes the mind without grasping. And that's a life-changing insight. You know, maybe faint initially or maybe you get a big dose with early insights. But one way or another, it's, you know, it's a gradual awakening that nothing whatsoever should be clung to, as the Buddha says. So I'll leave it here. There's a little time for questions and also your own comments from your practice you'd like to share with the group. What of this has made sense in terms of your own experience? So what comes to mind? Questions? And all this is spelled out in great detail. I don't know how many pages the article is, but maybe about 15 by Venerable Analio and I sent that out. Yeah, Kevin first, and then Haya.
1: Um, so I've been reading and rereading and rereading this uh, these instructions by uh, Anaglio, and I'm just... Uh, it's so enlivening. I mean, they're just—it's really amazing. Just the depth and and his just whole take on on meta, uh, the Brahma Viharas, and um, I'm just super into it. But there's—it's really there's a lot to go through um, to get to meta. Like just as, like you were saying. Um, First, you need to see if the mind has any of the hindrances, and then you need to I can't remember mm-hmm. what else there is now, but but it just feels like so much thinking, yeah. and I'm like not practicing.
0: yeah, but that two things. One is uh, only bite off a little and master it because you see that that goes back like in terms of this particular map, you bite off a little and it and actually delivers the goods, so there's some faith. You're willing to make more effort. You use the particular training to stabilize, to sort of see things as they are with some continuity of just seeing things as they are. Samadhi, the stabilizing happens. The mind understands more and more confidence because you really want to build on success. So maybe only do the first two parts and just keep doing it. And then later when the mind has become fluent, then go through those first two parts very quickly. Just flash on them. Like when he guides people through the whole process, I mean, you're just going, you're just sweeping down through the body, and so it's like 30 seconds with each of these contemplations. And don't expect perfection, because it's like the fluency, initially we're not that fluent, and so you might need to use the guided meditation for a while, And then it's a lot of work to think it through without the guided meditation, right? But it's sort of like a vocabulary. And when we first learning a new language or a new vocabulary or a new craft, we're really clumsy. And, And there are different ways, you know, like just to bear with that clumsiness or to master it piece by piece and then put the pieces together. There's not necessarily one way to do it. But to understand that, We're building fluency. And you're right, his maps are more complicated because he's a Dharma nerd. And he's like one of the most brilliant Dharma nerds I've ever met. You know, he's so he really tries to simplify things, but but he's just so in love with these maps and they have been so useful for him that, you know and the mind is complicated. I mean, awareness isn't complicated, but the entanglements of the mind are complicated. But one way or another, we have to um, be able to to be aware without these four distortions. right? So we have to, the question is, because a lot of us think, well, I'll just be mindful, but we don't realize we're still in the world of attractiveness, the world of experiencing things personally, the world of presuming permanence, the world of thinking my meditation is going to get me to a satisfying place and then I'll be good. right These, even though they may be subtle, we don't notice them because they're just second nature to the thinking mind. We don't see them. So you, you we really need these contemplations to challenge these distortions because we should just assume they're there as we're just operating in the world and even you know operating in our meditation. Um, and just also related to what Kevin is saying, because so this meditation, I think, is 40 minutes, and you're going to have the same response that Kevin just described, like, wow, because there's a real transmission in hearing, I think, Venerable analio go through the meditation as Kevin suggested it was for him. Certainly for me, I find that true. And you're going to find it really complicated. And that's okay. And... Uh, and even if all you do is listen to it once and it plants a couple seeds and you never listen to it again, great. But I would listen to it, the guided meditation that's on Dharma Seed. And like I said, I'll send the link out. And then also um, I'll type out some of the outline of the different pieces because it's just a nice, simple structure of understanding how mindfulness, the, the Buddhist teachings on mindfulness are all about helping the mind get to the place Where it can look at the activity of the body and the mind without distortions, without being confused by what we think the body and the mind is. That's a big step. And, you know, it's often this way, isn't it? Like, to be mindful, there's all this preliminary work we have to do. It's not easy to be mindful. It's simple, but it's not easy. Yeah, someone was next. Oh, yeah. Anybody else like to go? We have a couple minutes, maybe one minute. Yeah, maybe Rob.
1: You know what I think I've been noticing, in, and especially in your talk today when you're talking about mindfulness, and it, it's like, I'm aware that, oh, I thought I already learned that. It, the thing is, it's like, no, you can't, in, unless you keep walking, 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 you don't remember how to walk. Or if, you know, how, if you don't keep doing things. So I just was aware when I was thinking about what you were saying about distortions and whatever, and I'm thinking, Wow. How did those come back? I thought I, I thought I fixed that. So I think it's the realizing that I need to keep practicing the same thing over and over because otherwise the, the, that thought that I think I already know is going to come back.
0: Yeah. Think about how many minutes, mind moments, when we were teenagers and young adults and that we spent Contemplating bodies and individuals as along that scale of attractive and unattractive. So there's a lot of momentum just in that one mental habit, let alone all the other habits of mind, right? And so the unwinding now insight works faster than the cumulative delusion that we the mind has set in motion through its habits, right? But it still it takes time to really match the momentum of ignorance with the sort of sword of wisdom, you know, cutting through, seeing through, seeing that that's just not the way it is. It's just not the way it is. You know, so you could look around the room and you know it's not like you forget what what you're conditioned to see is attractive or unattractive, just to take that one example. But you can it's like the mind is really fluent. It can really See things in neutral ways. And you can just practice. So, this is the nice thing about all four of these contemplations. They really lend themselves to daily life, too. You know, to just play with one. And this is another way to build fluency. Just to be curious, not just when you're sitting, but to be working on these concepts and applying them to your direct experience in daily life. And just work with one for a couple months. One of these contemplations and make it your own so you're not like parroting some teacher but you're creatively using it on your own and that might be nice to take one of them this week and then next week when we come together and have small group just to share to inspire each other how I did this little tiny piece of the whole map that I really own this little piece and I learned a thing or two in these last six days about this little piece. And my mind is different now, having done the contemplation and and really kept interested in this in enough moments during these six days that I have something I can report to my group. So we need to leave it here, just take a moment, let go of the words. Thanks, everyone, for coming tonight. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening.